0: Discussions and Digital Podcast, our series that brings together different voices in the valley to explore interesting issues emerging in the digital world, while enjoying some really good food. Today, we're going to explore catapulting B2B companies into the digital age. We're meeting today at Roca Core Restaurant. I'm Diane Esber, a partner at McKinsey focused on driving digital growth, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Robert Chatwani, CMO of Atlassian, and Larissa Pomero global GM of the B2B business of Art.com, as well as my colleague, Brian Gregg. So just a question to start off for you, Robert. When it comes to B2B companies, based on your experience, you know what are some of the biggest areas of impact where you can actually see digital driving versus more traditional face-to-face interactions?
1: If I take the experience and um, business model at Atlassian, I think it's a bit distinct from a lot of traditional enterprise software companies in the sense that we don't even have a sales force. And so we rely really heavily on solutions partners and channel partners uh, to serve that role of being the the face-to-face conduit to customers, particularly large enterprise customers. In our business model, most transactions actually happen online. And if I look at the characteristics of a classic consumer journey, it's remarkably similar to how uh, decisions get made by buyers of business software. We have 85% of the Fortune 500 that use uh, our products, and in most of those cases, the decisions about buying the software is made by uh, teams within the company as opposed to a sale that's made by the CIO. A part of that is driven by the price point of our software. It's relatively accessible and often doesn't require a procurement team to actually be involved. And so where we see the opportunity is in fact less around a traditional sales force driving our growth, but in fact investing more heavily in technology, data-driven personalization, and effectively making our marketing more efficient.
2: But Robert, can I just just for fun to challenge you for a second? Would you argue that the, you, you start out with, Atlassian doesn't even have a sales force. Is that a, just a unique thing about Atlassian? In instances
1: where it's not a full-blown enterprise-wide implementation, that has to involve the CEO or the CIO. I believe increasingly you have decisions about buying software being made um, in the depths of the organization. And in those instances, I actually believe a low-touch, high-efficiency business model is actually going to be a driver of sort of the next generation of growth for a lot of of these companies. Just to give like one stat, for a lot of those companies, sales and marketing as a percentage of revenue ranges 40 to 60 percent. It's remarkable.
0: So, Robert, in terms of biggest impact area, you're saying the whole chain, right, for you. Larissa, what do you think?
3: Art.com, who has grown up as a purely B2C online player, you know, is really good and getting even better at online marketing. Um, but does not have a sales force to speak of. And so I have the choice ahead of me of whether I have to build one, which would be following the traditional model in the art industry and in the design industry. There they have a really old school um, rep model where I would need to create regions and territories and have people going door to door (laughs) with sample kits. And I just find that hard to believe that that's the best way forward in this day and age.
2: The ultimate bleeding edge right now is when you combine that science with the human curation, right? I think of Stitch Fix, who's got 200 plus data scientists being thrown at what sort of combination should show up in your box based on what you did last time. But in the end, a set of merchants are also curating that based on what's happening in the trends. And the combination of those two are what feels like the, the generation ahead of just machines doing their work.
1: I, you know, it's funny because I have a LinkedIn example from today which is a friend of mine who shared this with me. She uh, works here in San Francisco, and interestingly she works for Macy's, and she was very specifically targeted uh, with a promotion from LinkedIn to do a complete makeover on her LinkedIn profile, which is interesting, and the, the offer I don't know what her LinkedIn profile looks like today, so perhaps they, they detected something that, that needed bad. help. <laughs> but the offer was in partnership with J. Crew, and it's an event at a J. Crew store here in San Francisco where there will be uh, a combination of how to dress for an interview combined with the stylist who will help you as a personal shopper. And it's a makeup session where they'll take your headshot for your LinkedIn profile, and they're offering three months of free LinkedIn premium access if you attend the event. However, um, it was invitation only. So she was very specifically targeted based on, most likely, demographics, but it's interesting because it's a data-driven campaign that requires human interaction offline. So I think this combination of uh, machine and human coming together in that convergence I would have to agree. is 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 a remarkable, powerful uh, mix that I think you know absolutely will define great marketing.
0: So a lot of the capabilities that we see in B two C companies, we almost take for granted, right? Customer centricity, market insights, etc. And sometimes when you talk to B two B companies, they say we're different, right? With different industries, we're different selling environment. So what's the reality here? Everything just moves
3: faster. I found in B two C and so you know b2b is going to need to pick up the pace just to compete as more b2c companies like art.com are moving into that world um, it's fascinating because Spanning both in art.com, B two C customers will say you're not fast enough. Amazon's the benchmark. You know, I want delivery in one day or two days. Whereas the B two B clients will come and will tell me, "Wow, you guys are amazingly fast. That's why we use you because you can turn things around when I have a fire drill." And it's like such a, you know, such a different competitive set when when you know old school B two B physical. Uh, Shops are taking weeks or even months to deliver on a project.
2: My other um, observation on the DNA of B2C that has started to hit B2B, but in a just a little slower uptake, or at least maybe hasn't fully come to fruition, is this, you call it a customer centricity, but obsession with the customer, Bezos can't, you can't listen to Bezos for more than 30 seconds without him saying the customer matters most, right? And so in a world where. You might be selling to a CIO now, or you're selling to a group of procurement officers or fill in the blank, how do you keep them center?
1: You know, it's funny as I hear you speak, I would almost argue that making a, 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 an IT or a software decision or a B2B purchase decision yeah. can be just as emotional in some cases, if not more emotional than making the decision about buying something as a consumer. The decision makers for B2B software in many ways, depending on the magnitude and scope of what they're buying, are actually making a career bet Mm -hmm. when they decide to purchase software. Now, if it's something in the millions of dollars, you can absolutely guarantee that there'll be multiple decision makers, but it is a career bet, right? They're staking their reputation on getting behind a company or a decision that this is what I choose as a decision maker to bring into my organization, that dozens, hundreds, thousands of people will use.
3: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, but I also would love to pick up on something else you talked about, which is the multi-stakeholder decision-making. Because for me, that's one of the more different things about B2B than B2C. And yet, each of the stakeholders involved do have to connect with you emotionally and or functionally, which makes the value proposition have to be a little more robust. So, for example, as I'm just starting to mine our data, right, there's always like a purchasing or finance person involved. There's also, in my case, like the designer or marketing person who's thinking about something totally different, like the, the brand and the artistic elements. And then there's often the owner or the executive, right, the, the sort of senior, senior decision maker. And they all kind of need something different, but we can know and appeal to all of them with our tools and data.
0: McKinsey also has some research that's shown that some industries, like the chemicals industry of all places, could unlock $200 billion worth of value if they enhance their digital experience. But part of the reason they haven't been able to capture something like this is it's really hard and change needs to happen both from a talent perspective and just in a way of working. So what have you seen kind of most effective in evolving B2B companies to drive digital?
3: I think probably the fastest way I can think of to, to make an evolution like that is just to bring in talent that's done it a lot before, right? Yeah. A, new, a new DNA. And the risk of doing that is, you know, there's, there's always the possibility of tissue rejection, right? Like, it's, a, <laughs> it's pretty different. Um, but, but if you really are very committed to making the change, or at least if trying it, you know, bringing in somebody who's done it before, ideally a few times, and can lead that change... I think would be very interesting and very helpful. And
0: how have you found the talent attraction, right? So when you have a pool of B2C talent who's worked on all these different stages, um, what makes them really excited to dive into some of these B2B companies?
1: Some of the most attractive candidates to me are those who've um, followed a career path of sort of discovery and curiosity and are able to mix competencies from different verticals, different industries. So for example, One individual that we're speaking to right now comes from a really, really strong communications and agency background, and for about a year has worked um, in cloud security. And she made that leap because she realized she's in Silicon Valley. She has this incredible design and communications background, but she wants to really jump into technology. And through the combination of these two things, she has this remarkable competency of being able to take very, very complex cloud security concepts and communicate them really, really easily to end users. And she's fallen in love with this sort of merge of these two
2: things. I feel like there's two things happening with this talent question. I think, I'm finding inside my own B2C clients, more and more of them are asking themselves, how can we actually monetize in a B2B way? They're they're either trying to package up their data. If you're Live Nation, the ultimate concert experience, they're asking how do we package up our data and then sell it right to uh, the leagues as Live Analytics, which is a B2B place.
0: So how does the you know, evolution of a salesperson evolve in a digital B2B world? What are we looking for different skill sets? How do we think about this?
1: Well, I don't think you have to look far to see that challenge actually um, happening today. Uh, I'll use the example of Cisco, which is a company that's moving really rapidly from a very hardware-driven business to a software and solution sales business. However, you have tens of thousands of salespeople who have historically been incented, wired, and motivated to sell hardware. And if you speak to Karen Walker, their CMO, um, she's driving a remarkable transformation at that company today, um, but it can't go fast enough. And so the challenge is inherently you have um, a very effective sales organization with nothing but a phenomenal track record at um, customer-centric sales, having to make this shift of now selling services and sort of software products uh, on a recurring revenue model, which is very different than the traditional hardware sales model. And I think whether it's a large company like Cisco uh, or even a mid-sized or early stage company, disrupting your own model is probably one of the most effective ways to make this leap. And it comes with a lot of complexity and pain perhaps, but figuring out how to balance delivering the present and creating the future and doing that at the same time, I don't think is even an option for most companies. You have to figure out what part of your business are you going to begin to introduce a more, call it asset light model of getting to the customer.
3: Yeah, I'm probably oversimplifying, but it seems to me that the migration will be from like more outside sales to more inside sales, from more phone to maybe more video, uh, chat, etc. Right, like some of the media will change from more um, manual to more automated AI kind of stuff. So, like you've got more tooling that are enabling faster responses. I think it, you know, there will be sort of a migration, and hopefully the sales job just gets easier. Right, it gets more scalable. You need fewer, more technologically enabled people to do to more to do more, more effectively.
1: There will always be sales competencies in companies. I think what you'll see is the model becoming more agile and more flexible. And how can that happen, right? So that's one trend. Yeah, but you know, this, this this shift towards a more gig-based or freelance economy, I haven't yet sort of seen it make it make its way into the sales organizations, uh, but it's starting to emerge. There's a remarkable company called Swarm Sales, which is based here in Silicon Valley, which attracts freelance sales individuals and matches them with early stage companies. And so in this case, Swarm Sales says, hey, you're an individual who's worked in a particular industry or for a particular company for many years. We fundamentally believe what your asset is, is not your knowledge of that company and its products, but it's your relationships that you've built over years or over decades. That's valuable to a lot of different companies. Now, if I'm a, call it a B2B company, and I want to expand my sales force or expand my reach, um, why not tap into that kind of a
2: capability? So I'd love you to disabuse me of this view, but it feels like B2B has sort of been changing slowly. We're seeing the movie go, right? Salesforce used to be the small company, now it's the behemoth, and like, okay, what's the next wave?
1: If I can speak to software, I think the um, one massive shift that we're starting to see is from server to cloud, and the ability to migrate quickly, lower your cost of ownership, and simply from that lower cost of ownership, you can justify any cost of actually making the switch.
3: Yeah, I think that's that's well articulated on why why it's behind B 2 C. Um, totally agree with you, and especially coming from the entertainment space, there's a huge amount of legacy technology and legacy processes, and nobody wants to go through the pain of switching. But when you do, it opens up a whole new world, and so. I do think it's coming, it's starting, it should get easier and easier as the, as the providers of those new technologies have, you know, work harder to get over the barriers and the switching costs, provide more incentives. If the last decade was about the explosion of consumer technology, maybe the next decade is gonna be the explosion of B2B progress and, and
0: um, technology. So we've talked a lot about what B2B companies can learn from B2C. What about the reverse?
1: I think there's a few things. So one is, as a B2B company, you need a really strong value proposition, because inherently somebody's making, I'll take again, software as an example, comparing you against competitors in a very deliberate... And very rational. No, I mean, you better have a rational value prop. That's right. That's right. And, and so defining that value proposition and mapping it to industries. To verticals, to functions within companies, and really getting sharp on the relevance of your product offering uh, to that customer and spending a lot of time on making sure that it's differentiated and competitively well positioned. Um, I think a lot of B2B companies do that particularly well. Monetization is absolutely another one, especially in a SaaS driven business model with recurring revenue. And what's magical about that is the recurring revenue model and how predictable it can become, particularly if you manage well for churn.
3: I think on the monetization front, a lot of B2C companies get overly focused on the, the demand generation on the consumer. And there's actually a lot of value to be had in other parts of the value chain that sometimes they don't think about. So, you know, B2C can easily turn into B2B by just looking towards the supply side and thinking of services there, or the, you know, the wholesale intermediary that you may ignore and consider a competitor could actually become a customer. So I think that's actually a really interesting one. The other one that I would say is, I think the sales discipline that, you know, that B2C is sometimes disdainful of, um, there's a lot of science behind the sales process in B2B. Again, whether it's digital or not, Um, you have to think about winning pitches and why you're going to win and how you're going to differentiate from competition in a very tactical way um, and very specific to a customer segment.
2: Well, I'm just wondering what the two of you think of as you look at Amazon just being almost the ultimate B2B and B2C company, and they made that flywheel work both ways, right? They've le- taken things that they built for the B2C universe and monetized it to the B2B, and then they've taken the B2B cash and invested it back in the B- I mean, there is a, a, an amazing um, phenomenon happening up in Seattle, I think, that is still yet not played out somehow.
3: Yeah, Amazon's definitely a B2B um, player now. Now now that I'm seeing them on that side, I mean, they're, they're legit, they have a really effective sales engine, you know, they, they called me to sell me on their B2B product as, as I was trying to get into their B2B marketplace. <laughs> I think we see that with Staples as well, but, you know, the scale that B2C has provided can create scale in B2B without that much effort, it looks like. So I think we do have to watch out. For, for B2C players moving B2B when they are when they have that much of the kind of consumer population who could be both a buyer and a, sorry, a, a B2B buyer and a B2C buyer.
1: Well, what's remarkable about their business also is that they're taking capabilities and competencies they've built in their core business and turning that into products that they can then sell to the businesses. A recent example is they have a customer service solution offering uh, similar to like a Zendesk yeah. um, that's SaaS based and that emerged out of the very fact that they built that themselves for their own company. And so I think these offshoots and extensions of you know, sort of the horizons of growth that they're able to uh, evolve into, a lot of it really comes from leveraging the capabilities they've built to serve themselves.
0: And with that, I want to thank you all for joining me here tonight for our discussions in digital. It's been such a treat. For our listeners, please tweet us your ideas for the next podcast. Who do you want to hear from and what do you want to hear about? To learn more about what we're publishing, check out our site, McKinsey Digital, and McKinsey on marketing and sales. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks.